Good morning. It's so good to be with you this morning. I'm so grateful that we have had the opportunity over the last several weeks to meet together, although virtually, not in person, but I'm also really excited about the fact that starting next Sunday morning, we are going to get back together for in-person worship. Now, there's a few things to consider with that. We are certainly not out of the woods when it comes to the COVID pandemic, especially in our own community here. And so we want to make sure that when we come together, we do so safely. So if you're someone that doesn't feel comfortable meeting yet in person, if you're someone who is more vulnerable, if you're someone that is having any symptoms whatsoever, we would ask that you continue to stay home, to watch online, don't feel guilty about not being here. The time's going to come soon, hopefully, that we can all resume worshiping together without any kind of fear of spreading this virus. And so we want to we want to encourage you to stay home if you're in that more vulnerable care, uh, category. And you can also continue to watch everything online as we have been streaming Bible class, morning worship, uh, evening uh, lessons, and then also our Wednesday night lessons. And then we also expect that you'll wear your mask, that you'll social distance, that you'll take the precautions uh, so that we can continue to meet in person. We're going to meet uh, at 8.15 and at 10.30 like we had been doing, although we're going to change that up a little bit in that the 8.15 service will be in the family center and the 10.30 service for now will be in the auditorium to kind of you know give space and, and hopefully help uh, take some extra precaution with this virus. I'm just excited that we're going to be together. I'm excited for a new year with my church family. You know, it's a new year and with a new year, it means certain things to certain people. Some people are going to stop certain behaviors. They're going to vow to quit certain things in the new year. Other people are going to vow to start new things in the new year, whether it's to be healthier or whatever. It's a chance to hit the restart button. And I think that I speak for all of us when I say good riddance to 2020 with all of its COVID chaos and unrest. This is a fresh start. And hopefully this is a year that is not signified by face mask and social distancing and sheltering in place. For us here at Oldham Lane, the new year means a new theme and a new opportunity, a new direction. And as I said, I'm excited about what this year holds. I'm ready to turn on the engines and go full blast into a new year, continuing the momentum that we had before this whole pandemic hit. I'm really excited about where Oldham Lane is headed. And so with that in mind, our new theme for this year is, I love my church. And it's more than a theme, really. It's a statement of fact, at least it is for me. I love this church. And I, I assume that you do as well, based on our high contribution, based on the fact that when we are together, you see people hugging and shaking hands and lingering after church for, for several minutes to talk and to catch up. This is a, a body that is growing. It is a warm and dynamic fellowship, and I am so grateful that I get to be a part of it. I want this theme to serve as a reminder from this point forward of how blessed we are as the family of God, as the family that meets here. And, and I understand that there may be some that say, well, you love your church, but it's not really your church. It's not really my church. You know, it's Jesus' church. And to that, I would say, okay, I hear you. But, you know, I, I like the Dallas Cowboys. And oftentimes, I will speak of them like, you know, we need to win this game or, or we played well this week. I don't play 
It's not really my team. It's Jerry Jones's team. But there's an investment, right? When you love something, when you're passionate about something, you invest in it. So in a sense, this is our church. It's my church because I'm invested. And while it belongs to Jesus and while he is the head of it, we all take ownership in it, right? And so it is ours to some degree. You know, I say this theme often uh, when I talk to people. I talk about how much I love my church. And uh, to start this year, we are going to start this, this theme with some sub-themes or sub-lessons. And one of them this morning is what's not to love. I think there's so much that goes into me loving the church here at Oldham Lane and, and so much that goes into you loving it as well. And, you know, we say things uh, sometimes like what's not to love when referencing something that we are passionate, something that we love so much. My wife will tell me I love you and I respond with what's not to love, right? You hit the lottery. Actually, I don't say that. I know better. But to say what's not to love is kind of like saying, well, duh, right? I mean, you say, I love the church. Well, certainly we love the church. What's not to love about Oldham Lane, right? We have a great group of elders, a great group of deacons. I get to work with some of my best friends. I love Blake and, and Jake and David and, and, and BB and Stephanie and, and Danette. And we have a great staff here. There's so many things here to love. Our, our church members who are great servants, what's not to love? You know, I was driving by a house the other day and in the yard there was a sign in big bold letters that said for sale and underneath it there were the words I'm gorgeous inside and I thought to myself I sure hope so because the house was nothing to look at on the outside the grass was grown up there were weeds in the flower beds there was you know the the, the bushes need to be trimmed there was paint chipping off the house there were maybe some shingles gone it better look good inside because there was really no curb appeal to it on the outside. And maybe some people look at the church that way. Maybe they think, well, it's really nothing special from the outside looking in. I mean, just a bunch of ordinary people that gather together, you know, on a weekly basis. It's really kind of an unremarkable thing from the outside. The church is made up of ordinary people that are young, middle-aged, male, female, married, single, unemployed, overworked, divorced. Some of us sing off-key. We don't always live what we profess. None of us are much to look at, maybe. But the church has more beauty and value than what meets the eye. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Let's begin reading in verse 1. Paul writes, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gifts of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, 
but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have also been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Paul had a uh, complicated church story, didn't he? I mean, he grew up in a Jewish household. He grew into an adult who was a fierce defender of his religion, so much so that he despised the church and Christ followers. And he dedicated his efforts and his energies to tracking down people like you and me and having them thrown in prison or having rocks thrown at them. But as you know, on his way to levy more persecution against the church, He had an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, and it changed everything. That encounter moved Paul from a persecutor to a proclaimer. A once enemy of the church now became the church's best friend. And from that point forward, Paul didn't skip around whistling victory in Jesus. In fact, he would experience many challenges both from outside the church and even within it. He was viewed with skepticism by church leaders. He suffered personal attacks from false teachers and their adherents. He had many disagreements and disputes with fellow Christians. He was disappointed with other Christians, not to mention the shipwrecks and the stonings and the beatings, the imprisonment and all the other travails that he had to endure as a proclaimer of the gospel. And yet through it all, he loved the church. You know, one of the saddest things that Paul ever wrote were these words. At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. If anyone knew about disappointment with the church, it was certainly Paul. But that disappointment never eclipsed his love for the brethren. So now you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You do realize that this is not a chapter on how to have marital bliss, right? This is not a manifesto on how to be a better husband or wife. Although this chapter is often recited around Valentine's Day, although you hear it recited at weddings most often, that was not Paul's intent. This is often our go-to chapter on defining agape love, and that's fine. In fact, there are principles here that certainly apply to the marriage relationship, but the greater context of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is focused on spiritual gifts. These words come on the heels of what Paul had just stated about the various individual gifts among the members and what they bring to the table. And we won't read all of chapter 12 that sets this up, but let's hit some highlights. Chapter 12, verse 4, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Chapter 12, verse 12, for even as the body is one and yet has many members and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. Verse 14, for the body is not one member, but many. And then you look at verses 27 and following of chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. It says, now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts. 
We talked about this a few weeks ago, but Paul is mentioning the diversity of unity among believers. Different members have different gifts, but all members work in harmony with their gifts for the betterment of the church. You see, the danger is always for people to be in competition with one another, thinking that their gift may be more important than someone else's. And that kind of thinking, of course, disrupts the harmony and unity of the church. In essence, Paul says there is no competition here because we're all on the same team. And he goes on to state that there is one gift that is greater than all the others, and it is the glue that binds the church together in perfect unity. It is, of course, the gift of love. And this gift permeates everything we do, everything that we are, so much so that Paul states that if one does not have love, then their spiritual gift is worthless. It means nothing. You think about that for a second. A gift given by the Holy Spirit can be of no value whatsoever if not coupled with love. Speaking in tongues is nothing more than a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Did you know that one of the primary characteristics of pagan worship was clanging cymbals and a blaring trumpet? Even speaking in tongues, a spiritual gift, is nothing more than, than, than pagan worship if not accompanied with love. What good is knowledge if absent of love? What's it matter what you know if you don't love the people that need to know it? Giving to the poor can be done out of a sense of duty or obligation. We can give begrudgingly. If we don't give with a heart of love, then it means nothing. Some even give their bodies to be burned or sacrificed, which seems like a noble thing, right? But Paul seems to be referencing someone who does this out of pride or exhibitionism. So martyrdom becomes valueless if it's, done out of, if it's not done out of an undying love and commitment to Christ. Then Paul goes on to talk about the various aspects of agape love. And in the process, he shows how unique this type of love is and how different it is from, from so many or what so many often think of when they think of love. It's long-suffering. It's kind. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. It's not self-centered. It does not insist on its own rights. It rejoices in the truth. It can handle anything. And Paul says this, this is who you are. This is who you should be. This is not what you do. This is who you are. It's your character. Just insert your name in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 because that's what you're supposed to be about. You are patient. You are kind. You are not arrogant. You are not these things because these things threaten the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You know, my grandfather every morning would go out and pick up the paper out of his driveway. He would come inside and he would sit in his recliner and read it. And because I spent a lot of time at my grandfather's house, I would climb up in his lap as well. He would unroll the Paragold Daily Press and he would start with the funny papers as he called them. Because he had a strategy with reading the paper. He believed that you started with the comics and that would set the tone for all the negative news that he would read later. So I would sit in his lap, and he would unroll the paper, and he would start in the comics section. And the very first comic strip in the Paragold Daily Press at that time was Peanuts. Remember Peanuts, Snoopy, Linus, Charlie Brown, Lucy, you got it? One particular comic strip had Linus watching television, and Lucy barges in and tells him to change the channel to something that she wanted to watch. And Lucy says, or excuse me, Linus says, what makes you think you can barge in here and tell me what to do? And Lucy says, these five fingers. Individually, they aren't much. But when I curl them together into a fist, 
They are a weapon that is terrible to behold. And Linus says, what do you want to watch? And he walks away looking at his hand going, why can't you guys get organized like that? We as the church need to get organized like that. Maybe individually we don't feel like much, but when we come together and we ball up as a fist, we become a weapon that is terrible for Satan to behold. But sadly, what happens so often is we forget who the real enemy is because we're too busy punching on one another. And why this happens is beyond me, but Paul certainly had to deal with it from time to time. You might remember Euodia and Syntyche. We provide a lethal punch when we're all balled together. Let's make certain that we're punching at the right target. Paul's description of love in 1 Corinthians 13 is not a reference to how a husband should treat his wife or vice versa. It's in context of the Lord's church and how we should treat one another, which means this is pretty radical teaching, isn't it? I mean, we have little problem understanding this from the perspective of a husband or a wife. We get that we should be uh, less self-centered, that we shouldn't keep a record of wrongs and all those things in a marriage. We may not always get it right. We may not always live by it, but we understand it. But it becomes a little murkier and muddied. When you start applying these words to other people, people that maybe we're not married to or that we don't necessarily even love and appreciate like we should, even people within the church, we don't get as sappy and sentimental about 1 Corinthians 13 when we understand that this treatise on agape love is actually meant to be applied to our brothers and sisters in Christ. But this is so highly important because it affects everything we do. It will outlast tongues and prophecies and knowledge and all those spiritual gifts that Paul mentions. And out of the holy trifecta of faith, hope, and love, love supersedes them all because faith and hope depend on love. There is no faith or hope without love. And I think there's something else that Paul is driving at here. If you read between the lines, I think you can see something else. I can't help but think that there's another message within the message, and it's this. What will the world notice first? What makes the most impact on the world? Speaking in tongues? Knowledge? Prophecy? Maybe. Maybe that gets people's attention. But it's been my experience that the vast majority of people outside the church really don't care how much you know or how much you do. They want to know that you're actually genuine. I mean, you think about it. How does the outside world often assess the church? What does the unchurched see in us? What would make it into their Google or Yelp review? They judge us by our love, don't they? Do we care? When they come to visit us, do we show them love? Do we care about them? Are we compassionate? Even Christians do this, that are looking for a church home. They come into a church, maybe they move to the community and they visit a church, and that church may be solid biblically, but if they don't feel a warm welcome, if they don't feel like the church cares about them, then they'll probably move on to somewhere else. It doesn't mean that, that other things aren't important. It just means that love is the most important. Love isn't the only thing that matters, but it does matter most. Yeah, I don't want to get too negative here, but it's, it's rather disheartening to me when I, when I witness churches that, that elevate conviction at the expense of love. 
Maybe you've been a part of this. If we're being honest, you know, our, our history as churches of Christ, uh, you know, we've had to overcome some things. You know, there were debates of the past, and some of those were really good. Some of those were very informative and well done. There have been, you know, uh, church leaders or preachers that have written up others in brotherhood publications. There have been, you know, uh, folks that have been rather unloving as Christians to visitors who came through the door. You know, we haven't always been as loving as we should have been or needed to be. You know, the, Paul, the words of Paul echo in our minds, if you preach the truth but do not have love, what good is that? I, I don't know, maybe, maybe some Christians believe that they have to be tougher because if they're too loving, it might give the impression that they're not as convicted. Maybe we're afraid of losing our distinctiveness. Maybe we've convinced ourselves that standing for truth is most important, so even if I'm a little less loving, then it's still worth it. One thing I do know, at least I think I do, is some of the debates of the past and calling out others in brotherhood publications or maybe even our overall approach against preaching, uh, uh, of preaching against error, it hasn't always been the most loving. In fact, in some cases... Not all, but some Christians have been very unloving and even rude and hateful. And we hear the words of Paul echo, love is patient, love is kind. Remember what Jesus stated, John 13, 35, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, by your political views. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples by your debating skills. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples by the memes you put on Facebook and Instagram. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples by how many arguments you win. No, no, no. Paul said that your religious comprehension, your faith, and your service are absolutely worthless if they are void of love. Paul's not saying that these things are unimportant, please understand, but he is saying that they are not most important. He's saying that all these things find their meaning in love. You are a Christian, which means that you don't get to be impatient, you don't get to be unkind, you don't get to be rude, that's unloving. Your faith, your knowledge, your conviction, your charity are all important, they're vital, but they are meaningless if you, pe if you treat people like dirt. And remember something else Jesus said. When an expert in the law asked him what the greatest commandment is, Jesus responded, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. I think it's easy to assume that since God or loving God is the best and foremost commandment and loving other people is second, then we elevate the first one above the second one, which means that anything related to God and my doctrine and my theology and all that is more important. So therefore, how I treat other people based on that really doesn't matter as much. We think things like, you know, worship, my doctrinal beliefs and all that should take precedence over my relationships with other people. But here's the deal. It's not an either-or thing. It's not a ranking. You love others best when you love God the most. My love for God is what drives my love for other people. Christianity is a relational religion, and my relationship with God and my relationship with people informs everything else that I do in life. 
Notice that Jesus says that everything the prophet spoke and everything contained within the law is predicated upon loving God and loving your fellow man. It was Jesus who said this, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. That's an interesting scenario, isn't it? What's more important, going to church or, or repairing a relationship? Jesus taught that all the law should be kept, but he also taught that there were parts of the law that were more important. I've often heard Christians make the statement, all of the Bible is important, and to that I would say absolutely, 100%, I couldn't agree more. However, it's not all equally important. Every biblical issue is important, but love is most important. That's not me talking, that's Jesus talking. What you believe about God matters. How you worship matters. What you believe on every biblical topic matters. But love matters most. Sorry, it just does. Again, that's not me talking. I say this because so often we get things backwards. We tend to care more about what our brother thinks on a certain issue. And when what they think doesn't agree with what we think, we respond in a very unloving manner. We care more about one's politics than we do their soul. Or we care more about wearing a a suit and tie on Sunday than we do of how a person treats the poor or the widows and the orphans. We all have priorities, but do we prioritize things the way that God does? And I say we, I don't necessarily mean us. I just mean Christians in general, because I think by and large, we do a really good job here at Oldham Lane. And that's why I love this church. I just want to give a friendly reminder of a love of God and a love of God's people is what makes this. That's the engine that keeps this thing churning. Christianity stands or falls on the love that we show and share. It doesn't mean that we avoid the difficult things. It doesn't mean that me as a preacher... That I avoid the difficult topics. I mean, I am to preach the whole counsel of God. But if it's void of love, it becomes worthless. It becomes unbiblical, right? Love is the glue that holds us together. It is the catalyst for everything we do. Jesus says, love God, love others. Those are the two foremost commandments. And that is Christianity in a nutshell, right? I mean, that's, that's the basis of Christianity. You love God, you love others. That should permeate everything we do and everything we are. And as we close this morning, I would like to add to Paul's description of 1 Corinthians 13. Love is this. Love is 30 plus church members here at Oldham Lane gathering to clean up a member's yard. Love is our contribution here at Oldham Lane actually increasing during the pandemic, so much so that we were able to send extra dollars to Rusty Brown in Ecuador. Love is church member after church member calling the church office, asking Brianna, what can I do? Can I run errands for someone? Is there someone who needs groceries? Is there someone in need? Is there anything I can do to help? Love is our members gathering around the bedside of one who is dying and singing them into heaven. Love is all of you that send me cards, text messages, who pray on my behalf, who are so encouraging to me and telling me to to keep fighting the good fight. 
Love is who we are at Oldham Lane. What's not to love about this church?